Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, Gerard Arrow, Ambassador of France to the United States, joins the Atlantic Council's Future Europe Initiative for a discussion on French leadership in a post-Brexit Europe. Following the ambassador's remarks, our panel of experts debated France's role in navigating Europe's identity and electoral politics, developing and implementing a more coherent strategy to the South, and ensuring strength and unity in the face of revisionist Russia. The event took place on July 28, 2016. Good morning, everyone. Why don't we go ahead and get started? I'm Damon Wilson, Executive Vice President for Programs and Strategy here at the Atlantic Council. I'm delighted to welcome all of you in the room and those of you watching online for this important conversation on French leadership in a post-Brexit Europe, featuring our honored guest, Ambassador of France to the United States, Gerard Arome. Thank you very much for being with us, Mr. Ambassador. So we want to invite all of you and all of you watching online to join the conversation via social media using the hashtag StrongerWithAllies, which is part of a broader Atlantic Council campaign to spark discussion on the value of alliances to U.S. interests. But today's discussion is part of the Council's focus on understanding the historic changes that are taking place in Europe right now and assessing their implications for the transatlantic relationship. So as part of this effort, we not only consider trends across the continent, but we intend to spotlight developments in key nations. And today we are beginning with our spotlight on France. The future of Europe is in play. And there's much discussion in Washington right now on how do we sustain the US-UK relationship in the wake of the Brexit vote. The inevitability of turning our eye towards Berlin uh, uh, in a post-Brexit uh, European Union. But we wanted to ask, shouldn't we be considering, should we bet on France? France, an ally that combines strategic outlook, political will, military capabilities, and economic heft is poised to play a critical role in shaping Europe's future, both in terms of growth and in terms of security. Indeed, the great actors behind the European project were often French, from Jean Monnet and Robert Schuman to de Gaulle, Delors, de Stang. Everyone knows these names associates them with the European project. It was the French-German engine, the alliance, that was the engine of Europe's political integration. Um, even today, the Lancaster House treaties bind France and the United Kingdom as Europe's core capability on security and defense. But much of this is in question today. Europe faces historic challenges from the south and the east, and France sits at the pivot among the Union's northern and southern members and their respective perspectives and priorities, whether the issue is austerity, Islam, or sanctions. And yet we see a France that has been rocked with horrific terrorist attacks from Charlie Hebdo to a concert hall, cafe, and stadium in Paris, to Nice, most recently in Bastille Day, and just this Tuesday, the gruesome murder of a priest in Normandy. And these incidents are demanding an immediate focus on internal security, a reassertion of national sovereignty, rather than necessarily a strategy on how to hold Europe together, if not take it forward. Furthermore, the citizens of France head into critical elections next year to select their presidents, elections in which they face a stark choice. So we're gonna consider these issues today in a conversation. We're gonna consider the future of Europe and as a baseline, we've been looking at Pew studies that showed 38% of French view the European Union favorably today in contrast from 69% in 2004. 61% have an unfavorable view of the European Union, a figure that was higher than in the United Kingdom on the eve of the Brexit vote. 
And according to a Grant Thornton survey, 35% of French businesses support greater political integration in contrast to 61% in Germany. We're also gonna consider the challenges from the East and France's role in that, where the same Pew Research shows that 48% of French citizens believe it's important to be tough with Russia, while 49% believe it's more important to have strong economic relations with Russia, an even divide, if you will. We're gonna look at challenges from the South and France's role in that. And according to YouGov, 75% of French public support intensified airstrikes on ISIL in Syria, um, nearly 50% of the French support ground troops in Syria. And even before Nice, over 90% of the French public confirmed that ISIS was a major threat to them. It's also interesting to note that 29% of the French, according to the same survey, viewed Muslims unfavorably, which is actually among the lowest figures in European Union members. So this sets the backdrop for the discussion we'll have today. We'll hear first from Ambassador Rowe and then turn to a terrific lineup of panelists. We're really delighted to welcome Ambassador Rowe uh, to the Council today, a key partner and friend of the Atlantic Council, especially as we expand our own work on Europe and France in particular. Um, as everyone in this room knows, the Ambassador is an exceptionally experienced diplomat making a career of dealing with broader European issues and foreign policies towards Europe's East and South and the United States. Ambassador Hero has been in Washington since 2014, and prior to that he served, uh, uh, he represented France to the United Nations, served as Director General for Political Affairs and Security, and as France's Ambassador to Israel. The Washington community has finally come to know him as a strong negotiator, a frank and spirited communicator. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, you certainly should. Uh, we're eager to hear your perspective, Mr. Ambassador, on the state of France, as the United States' longest ally and crucial partner in securing Europe's future. So I'll turn over the podium to the ambassador, and then after the ambassador speaks, I'll turn to the Atlantic Council Senior Fellow, Jeremy Gaillon, one of our rising stars, who will lead a discussion uh, with Ambassador Rowe, who will be joined by Ambassador Fred Hoff, uh, director of our Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East, Laura Mondeville, an Atlantic Council Senior Fellow, uh, as well as Ambassador John Herbst, who directs our work on Europe's East. Mr. Ambassador, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> I just heard that France is a pivot between the, the north and the south. So from time to time, when I'm optimistic, I say that, that we have the qualities the, of the north and the south. But more often, I say that we have the shortcomings of the north and the south in Europe. Um, thank you very much. I am not responsible of the title of this conference. Uh, you know, really, even, even as, as you know, really, I remind, I remind you the French modesty. I, Certainly not. Uh, I've never referred to the French leadership. You know, it's sort of that's the sort of thing that I I think silently. I don't say it publicly. Um, you know, on the 14th of July, I was just preparing uh, to join the 2,000 French uh, guests at the French Embassy for the National Day when I, I learned uh, the attacks in Nice, and which has, of course, which changed dramatically. Uh, the significance of our, of our meeting. And you have heard also of the appalling uh, killing of, of a priest in the church while he was celebrating uh, uh, the Holy Mass. So it's, it's, it's a very, very dark moment for, for, for my country. And uh, it's obviously uh, the biggest threat that France has, has really has been facing, I think, since uh, 1945. It's a threat against our security, but it's also a threat against our values, uh, our 
the social fabric of our of our country. Uh, actually, uh, there is a, a lot of questions saying, in a sense, why France? And um, um, you can have a lot of different answers. First, France was a colonial power in the Arab world, and for a lot of people in North Africa, for instance, but also in Syria and Lebanon, where we were the colonial powers, uh, France is, as, uh, is the symbol of the West, of the Western value, in a sense, the same way that the, that the U.S. is. Also, uh, you have, obviously, uh, the problem of immigration. Um, we are the first, we have the first Muslim community in Europe, and most of the, these Muslims are from Arab origin, which means they are more sensitive uh, to the propaganda coming from the ISIS, uh, more sensitive that, for instance, uh, the, the Turkish immigrants in Germany or the Indians, Bangladeshi, Pakistani uh, immigrants in, uh, in, in the UK. Uh, so it's, uh, and last point, it's also because France has had a very active foreign policy and has been fighting for a few years now, has been fighting uh, 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 the jihadists. Uh, fighting them in, in Mali, uh, as you know, uh, and still we have still between 3,000 and 4,000 soldiers uh, in northern Africa, uh, Mali, Niger, and uh, on the southern border of Libya, uh, fighting uh, the, the terrorists uh, in this part of the world, and uh, we have been the first one to join the Americans in the striking ISIL uh, in um, uh, Iraq and, and in Iraq and Syria, and in Iraq. So, um, so we are doing, uh, and we are after the last attacks, uh, the French president has announced that uh, we are going to intensify our participation in the operations against the terrorists. We are sending an aircraft carrier group uh, to, the, um, to the region, and, and we have been intensifying the strikes against uh, the terrorists, uh, especially around Raqqa in Syria. We are working very closely with our allies and especially with our American allies. In, in Northern Africa, the Americans are providing uh, logistical and intelligence support. And, and we, are, uh, we have a, a very close intelligence cooperation uh, against uh, terrorism. On the EU side, as you may know, we have activated an article that we have for the first time, an article of the treaty, which is, I guess, if I'm not wrong, 42.6. Uh, art, uh, article uh, that uh, which uh, the EU partners will provide a political and military support uh, to our country. And one example was the fact that Germany uh, is sending uh, uh, military uh, elements uh, to Mali uh, to try to, 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 to help us. So that's the, 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 major, uh, the major threat, and of course it has consequences in, in our political, uh, the politi French political debate, and I will come back to this question of the political debate, because I do think that this question uh, is a wider question which is going well beyond the borders of France, as we have seen, as we are seeing to, in your country, and as we, are, we have been seeing also in Britain with, uh, with Brexit. The second challenge, which is a more long-term challenge, of course, is the future of the European Union, and especially uh, after, after Brexit. Um, um, Brexit for us is, uh, has a lot of, of consequences. First, we are not on, um, 
we are not going to punish uh, the United Kingdom. You know, really, uh, it, it, does, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, of course, after the vote, there were moments of anger, of resentment, uh, but when uh, uh, the dust uh, settles, the, the reality will be uh, that uh, we need uh, uh, to maintain a close and friendly relationship with the United Kingdom. Uh, as you may know, we have an extremely close relationship in military, on a military basis. There is a special treaty, the Lancaster House Treaty, uh, which is uh, really the, 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 the stepping stone of our military cooperation. Uh, but uh, in political terms and in economic terms, financial terms, uh, we do need, and it's, it's also our uh, mutual interest, to keep a close relationship uh, with, the, uh, with the United Kingdom. At the same time, of course, the negotiation for Brexit uh, will um, must respect the, the, the interest of all parties involved, and especially uh, with regard of the, the European single market and its four freedoms. As you know, the single market, you have the four freedoms, uh, freedom of circulation of goods, uh, capitals, services, and persons. Uh, you know, really, the four are, are integral part of the of the single market. You can't have only you can't have the cake and eat it. I'm sure that the British, as good diplomats uh, and are very good diplomats, we try to have the cake and eat it. But uh, the answer at the beginning of the negotiation is no way. So that's the fair. And uh, I, I want simply to emphasize that the negotiation. You know, really, in a sense. Very quickly, the, the, the European Union has a specific genius, which is to drown any political issues into endless and technicalities that nobody is able to understand. So I'm ready to, 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 to really to swear that in six months, nobody will know whether the British are in the EU or not in the EU. It will be a sort of incredible negotiation on, on really on, on the imports of washing machine. And you know, really, it's a... Uh, Actually, I've been negotiating on the washing machines in the European, in the single market. You know, that was a real existential debate uh, because the French are opening their washing machine by the top and the Germans on the uh, really. And the question was, what will be allowed? We negotiated 18 months on that, and at the end of this negotiation, we decided that both ways were acceptable. <laughs> really. So uh, I guess that it would be also a very technical negotiation, but with vital interest at stake. And so this negotiation may at any moment become acrimonious. We don't want it, but it, be, be, it may, because really vital interests are at stake, especially for the United Kingdom in terms of access uh, to, the, to the single market. And of course, the, the question that we have beyond the British, uh, the British case is the future of the European Union and with the, re the risk of disintegration, of unraveling of, of the European Union, especially in a, uh, in a period where you have uh, electoral processes, uh, not only in France, May 2017, but also in Germany in October uh, 20, uh, 2017. So it means uh, that the European Union topic uh, will be at the core of our electoral campaign. And it will be at the core, and I, I'm going to the, the, the populist outburst that we are facing in all the Western democracies, 
all the Western democracies from the US to UK with Brexit, uh, but also to France, to the Netherlands, to Scandinavia, to Italy, you have seen that with the election of the new mayor of Rome, uh, we are facing the same outburst of populism. Here, uh, this uh, uh, outburst has uh, four targets. On the, on the, on the right, uh, Washington DC, more or less, and the elites. On the left, Wall Street. Uh, in, in, in Europe, uh, the main target, in a sense, is the European Union. Uh, so the European Union will be really uh, at the core of, uh, of the, 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 the political debates in, in our country. Usually, you know, the European Union has gone from a crisis to another, to another crisis for the, last, uh, for the last 60 years. And usually at, at, at any moment when there was a crisis, the way of overcoming it was to say more Europe. Uh, but the problem uh, uh, in these populist uh, uh, atmospherics is that it's very difficult, uh, in a sense, to campaign about the idea of more Europe. So I. The, the first signals that we have heard coming from, uh, from Germany, from France, from France and Germany, was more that we are going, uh, our political uh, authorities on both sides of the Rhine are going to, to campaign or on, in a sense, better Europe, in a sense of a European Union, which could be easier to understand or, or easier uh, to, to the Europeans, uh, to the, the concerns of the, of the Europeans. So I think that we will have to, to campaign on, on the issues uh, like uh, protection on the, of the environment, uh, protection of the populations from the various threats, and especially, as I've said, uh, terrorism uh, and uh, economic prosperity. Uh, and here we are facing also, we are bumping into another reality, is that uh, the 2008 crisis uh, um, has been very painful in the US, but also in Europe, and we are just coming out of it. We are just coming out of it, and uh, uh, that's, the case of, that's the case of France after the reforms decided by my government, uh, but uh, still we, uh, there is a very high level of um, unemployment in, in some European countries, um, and um, we have to convince uh, in this prospect that the European Union uh, actually is contributing to the prosperity and is not limited to a sort of austerity straight jacket. Why the European Union project can be improved and can be easier to understand by the, the French, by the European citizens, I think we have uh, to be proud of its achievements uh, and, uh, and successes, you know, really, um, it's very symbolic, but you, we, you know, the Erasmus Student Exchange Program has allowed dozens of thousands of, of students, of European students, to, you know, to study in a foreign country. Uh, the single market uh, is, is there. Uh, the European Union is the first trading uh, power in the world, is by far the largest donor of development aid. Uh, the European Union uh, development aid is 60% of the world uh, development aid. Um, it's also an area of democracy, of justice, of, uh, of, uh, freedom, of freedom. I think one of the main, uh, the main successes of the European Union has been simply the integration of our Eastern partners. You know, uh, 
you have to, to remember where our Eastern partners were, you know, not so far, you know, it's not so far away, you know, it was in 1990. And, uh, uh, you know, really have with uh, communist centralized economies, uh, really much poorer than the Western European countries, and uh, we have helped them. Of course, the, success, the first success, they are responsible of, the, their, their, of their own success, but the European Union, you know, really has supported them at a very high cost. You know, really hundreds, uh, I guess the, the global figure is around 230 billions of dollars have been transferred from Western Europe to our Eastern European partners. I think that, that's, quite, that's quite a success. We are. Uh, uh, we have decided, and I think, in a sense, that could be that would be an argument that we present to our electors uh, to create uh, an European Coast Guard force and an European Border Force uh, to 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 respond uh, uh, to the, the challenges, the security challenges, and. And of course, uh, this European Union has been certainly uh, the best, uh, in a sense, the most solid and the most consistent ally and partner of the United States. And one of the results of this partnership has been uh, the, the, the success of the COP21 uh, in Paris for, for, fighting, uh, for fighting climate change. And uh, this, this cooperation uh, will remain uh, totally uh, critical for, for, for the future. So, at the end of the day, um, because of the geography of, uh, of, of the European continent, uh, in a sense, the challenges uh, may um, appear and are actually more acute in Europe, certainly in Euro Europe, than they are uh, uh, in the United States. But um, going back to this uh, uh, populist challenge, I, I do think that we have to answer to the same questions which are raised by our citizens uh, and are raised the same way in the, in the US Midwest and, and, and in the French countryside, uh, which is, uh, you know, I was uh, reading uh, the Financial Times on, on Friday uh, and there, were, there was, um, I think, a column by Martin Wolf, which was giving uh, the proportion in our countries of the households um, the, income, the income of which has stagnated, stagnated and or fallen since 2005. In Italy, it's more than 90%. But in the US and in France, it's more than 50%. Which means that between 5 and, and 16, more than half of the French and the Americans have seen their uh, income falling or stagnating, you know, really. And, and, and again, I, I was joking before entering, saying that I'm going to, to, to come out of my Marxist closet. And, uh, but, you know, really, the real question is there. You know, it's a question of economics. Jobs, 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 idiot. You know, really, the fact is that a large part of our citizens in America, in Europe, have suffered from the globalization. We are facing the rebellion against uh, globalization. Globalization has been very good for, for the poor in the third world and for the rich in the first world. But the problem is, of course, that, uh, the economy, that democracy is based on the prosperity, the well-being, the, the optimism of the middle class. So uh, I guess that beyond all the crisis that, that we have been facing, that we are facing, and that we are facing together, actually, there will be one crisis that uh, I don't know 
who will be the next president of the United States, but when she's elected, I think it will be very important. Uh, I think it will be very important that uh, really, in a sense, uh, uh, she, she will work with, uh, with the Europeans, but also the Japanese uh, partners uh, to say, how are we going to respond to the anger of our citizens? Thank you very much. Ambassador Aro, thank you very much for your remarks. Uh, you stressed the need to reconnect the uh, EU project with its citizens. Uh, in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, uh, German Foreign Minister Frank-Walter Steinmeier delivered the strong message that Germany is uh, also ready to step in to play a leading role in the crisis-driven Europe. And as he writes, and I quote, as the EU expanded, it lost momentum in its efforts to deepen the foundation of its political union, of quote, I wonder what is the French vision of a political union, of a political Europe? Is it a multi-speed Europe? And which capabilities would you give to this European Union? You know, the, the, in a sense, uh, the problem that we are facing is that uh, Europe or the European Union or is more or less um, the, the daughter of my generation. You know, really, uh, for my generation, uh, and uh, the European Union was, a, uh, in a sense, a moral uh, uh, must, a moral duty because of the war. And uh, so for, for, for my generation, and we, are, we have to, to, to try to adjust to this new world when suddenly uh, the younger generation doesn't consider uh, uh, the European Union on this basis. You know, really, so it's really a new world. I think it will be extremely dangerous if we um, and the political leaders of my generation or, or, or slightly younger uh, will simply not take into account this, this rebellion and simply said, okay, we are going to move forward as usual. We are going to make uh, a more step forward. You know, really, uh, we have, I think, to sit down and to think in terms of, is it possible to have more integration right now, more political integration? Or is it the message sent by the electors uh, to us saying, no, we don't want to move forward more? You know, really. So that's, that's one of the questions which will be addressed, and I guess we have to address. Mr. Schäuble, uh, the, 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 the finance minister of, uh, in Germany, said that he was in favor of less, in a sense, integration and more intergovernmental cooperation. Um, so I don't, in a sense, I don't have the answer to your, uh, I don't have the answer to your question. The, the only, again, my only, uh, the only thing I'm, I'm quite convinced of is we can't go business as usual. Uh, we simply can't go as usual, you know, the way, in a sense, we did in 2005. In 2005, the French electors voted against the European Constitution by 55% of no. And two years later, we decided business as usual, and the same constitution, more or less, went through the French Parliament, uh, which really was, in legal terms, totally legitimate, but it was a way of saying to our electors, you know, you can say whatever you want, we don't care. And that really was an important moment, and we can't do it again. Uh, but even though we go towards more intergovernmental cooperation, what would be the key concrete measures in the next few months for the EU 
to, and for France to promote at the EU level to give the feeling to ordinary citizens that the <coughs> EU meets with their expectations. You, uh, give certain, you gave certain directions in your remarks, but would it be more on the security issue? Would it be more on the migration crisis or more on the economic field? Well, I think the first thing, uh, the, in terms of priority, it's the security. It's certainly the security. And uh, so the problem is that what we are doing in the European Union, you know, from, from the European Union side, looks pretty uh, dramatic and not so much from outside. Uh, we have decided in six months, try to imagine for the European Union, create in six months, you know, really a border guard, you know, which means that, uh, you know, we are, we are going to have an European border guard at the external borders of, of Europe. We are working also together on the question of migration. Uh, so it's, in a sense, so it's moving, but uh, we have to be fair. And uh, we have, you have to realize that the European Union is 28 countries. 28 countries which have their own history, their own tradition, their own national interests. We have in the same block Finland and Portugal. Finland and, or Portugal and Estonia. And it's obvious that from, from really from Tallinn, you don't see the world the same way you see it from Lisbon. And you have different governments, different uh, uh, political situation, different economic situation. The economic situation in Germany is not the economic situation in, in Spain or in Greece. So our decision-making process is, by definition, grueling, it's very difficult and, and very slow. And the problem is that this de uh, decision-making process is facing acute crisis. And there is a sort of disconnect between the decision-making process, which is by definition slow, and the, 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 uh, the emergency that we are facing. Lord uh, Ambassador Arrow stressed the security threat, and while the first attacks against Charlie Hebdo had been followed by a strong sense of national unity, the aftermath of the Nice attacks was about security. And there have been many controversies in France over the last few weeks about the French response to the security threat. And um, so how do you assess uh, the French response to this threat? And do you think that France and Europe should draw lessons from what the US has done since 9-11? And do you think that in this regard, the development of an EU counterterrorism policy should be a key priority? Yes, uh, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you very much to, to invite me here. I'm very glad to, to be part of this conversation. The first thing I want to say is that Yes, you, you're talking about the French reaction to what has been happening over the last 19 months. And uh, we have actually moved from a situation of, I would say, in the French mood of, of shock and, uh, and, and the willingness to unite behind the government that was after Charlie Hebdo. And there was this sort of surge, pretty moving actually for a patriot like me, a moving a surge of French patriotism, this willingness to... Uh, to actually reappropriate uh, a patriotism which had been actually neglected and even uh, mocked uh, for many years in France. So that was the first reaction. And then we moving into November 2015. And, we, and the, move, the mood is changing already. The mood is more about anger. It's more about worry. But it's still sort of letting the government you know, handle the crisis. And then we have what happened in Nice. 
very recently, a few days ago. And you can feel in the French psyche, in the French mood, now not only anger, but also doubts about the capacity of the government to handle this crisis. And I think it was a striking image for us all to, to, to see that Bernard Cazeneuve, the Minister of the, Inter of the Interior, going through Nice was actually booed by the crowd when he went through, uh, th through the town. And I think this is, uh, you know, the explanation for that is, is that, you know, there are huge doubts about the capacity of the French police and in general the security system in France to handle a crisis of such a magnitude. I mean, we have to understand that we are faced with an enemy which is within our walls and we don't know where it, this enemy can come from. Uh, we have seen, you know, that there is this absolutely, uh, you know, unpalpable process of radicalization of, of people, you know, uh, uh, from very different backgrounds who suddenly turn to, uh, to these uh, awful terrorist attacks. So it's an absolutely huge challenge. And there have been quite a few articles actually in the press and uh, among them in the American press about the fact that the police is totally, you know, uh, tight and it's, uh, they don't have enough uh, people. I mean, we've seen the president calling for the police, uh, uh, you know, the reserve to, to come and, and, and show up to help. We've seen, you know, uh, retired cops to be called back, the use of, of private uh, uh, guards to, to help the, the military, and we've seen also this, uh, this Operation Sentinelle, which has been put in place and actually has somehow uh, been, uh, you know, analyzed recently as sort of ligne imagino uh, in, in, the, in the sense that it's, it hasn't been effective in preventing the new attacks. So I think all these, all these you know, worries and doubts are, are huge questions for the government. And of course, they're also huge questions for, for, you know, uh, for Europe as a, as, a, as a union, because you know, as the, the ambassador, I'm not gonna sort of, uh, continue, uh, you know, sort of uh, repeat what he's said, but the, the challenge of security, the, the importance of, of uh, cooperation in intelligence, all, all these questions are absolutely key. But if I, I can say one thing, you know, more general about what is going on here. Uh, I remember when I arrived in the US uh, in 2009 and I was absolutely struck by the way the administration and more generally, you know, the think tank community was watching Europe. The idea of that was that Europe was a post-historical place where nothing would ever happen again, you know, that we were actually busy with very Byzantine, types of discussions like the ambassador, uh, you know, <laughs> described on the, on the example of washing machines and that nothing really important was going to happen. So uh, America could actually pivot away from the European continent to other more, uh, you know, busy or worrying or more prosperous place like Asia. And what we're seeing is that it was a total mistake. Actually, already at that time when I arrived, there was an obvious problem with radical Islam was actually rising in Europe. And there was also the question of Russia, the revisionist Russia, which had just attacked Georgia. And we had these huge geopolitical threats which were, not, which were being ignored in the US. And now, you know, nearly eight years later, we are faced with history is back in, in Europe. We're not in post-historical space. We are back in histor historical time with the, we are, uh, you know, on the verge of a war, or maybe some people say already in a war, 
and um, which is being weighted against us. And what I want to say is that the, um, what happened with the killing of a French priest in Normandy a few days ago is, uh, for me, a watershed moment because it shows that the people we're dealing with, the radical Islamists, are actually waging, want to wage a war of civilization and a war of religion against us. So we can say we are not, we're not in a war of religion, but they think we are. So in a way, I mean, what is going to be the answer to that? This is really a huge issue, and I will go back if you ask me about, I think that actually one of the most challenging things that we're facing now is that we are actually seeing emerging a huge identity crisis in the West. And as the ambassador said, it's a, it's a crisis of globalization, it's a crisis of, a crisis of the unprotected, and I think it was Peggy Noonan, actually, in the Wall Street Journal, who made this distinction, saying that we are in a new world. We are in a world of the protected, which are usually the elite, so they feel more protected, so they don't see the, the danger in the same way, and the unprotected. And the unprotected are just asking for protection. So that's why we had, in the way, the Brexit. It's, it's a, it's a it's, um, search for protection and also a reaction to an identity crisis. You know, it's people saying, we want to keep our country as it is. We don't want it to be, you know, uh, sort of open to, uh, you know, uh, open-end immigration and also radical Islamists who are going to try to change our land. So I think th this is really you know, a key issue. Laura, you mentioned major social tensions in French society. Uh, the head of the domestic intelligence services in a hearing in the French parliament recently uh, mentioned the radicalization of French society. And in the context of the migration crisis, where one of the main challenges for France and for the whole Europe will be to integrate new waves of migrants from very different cultural backgrounds, uh, I would like to have your, your views on what which lesson can we draw from our previous mistakes in terms of integration? Uh, because countries like France, Germany, Belgium have adopted very different models of integration over the last three decades. And today we are seeing that they are all confronted with terrorist attacks. They are all confronted with major challenges in terms of integration. And so what are the, the lessons, the good practices that we should try to replicate at the European level? Yes. Uh, that this is really important, and uh, I mean, the ambassador actually has been pleading for a Marxist approach to, to, <laughs> to this question. I, I, I uh, graciously disagree, Mr. Ambassador. I think that actually the, the Western elites for a quite a long time have thought of, of the question of identity in, ter in Marxist terms, and they have thought that as, as long as we have, you know, a materialist, a material basis, we can integrate. And the question of integration is basically a, a socio-economic question. And I think what is happening, has been happening for quite some time, shows that it is not only a question of socio-economic integration. The socio-economic integration is like the ground on which the processes are happening, but the key issue is an identity issue, according to me. And I wanted to, I would like to, to quote actually Shadi Hamid, who recently wrote a very fascinating book called Islamic Exceptionalism. And it, I know that in this town it has had quite a lot of uh, echo and debates. And I must say it is a fascinating book also for Europe to study. Because 
what Shadi is saying is that religion matters and that the West, which has been massively secularized, especially in Europe, less so in the US, uh, is, has actually missed the point of the importance of religion and that people can be motivated, as he, he told me recently in an interview, not only uh, to, uh, to have a good material life, but to have a place in paradise and that to ignore the fact that some people can be motivated by that is actually a huge mistake that we are making. So that, that means that this, this, uh, the question of religion is absolutely fundamental and the, the elite in the West and in Europe are gonna have to face it more bluntly than they have in the past because they have ignored it because they were afraid of being uh, called Islamophobe, but now we have to actually look into the Muslim question, not only the radical Islam question, but also the Muslim question, how are we going to integrate Muslim population, which are very big, and uh, in our societies? What kind of problems does it raise? And I think that uh, Shadi Hamid is useful, why? Because he, sh he shows that Islam is in a way exceptional. That means Islam has a different approach to the, world, the way society is organized. So how are we gonna tackle this challenge? The French had their answer. They have an answer, but it's, we have seen that it's imperfect, secularism. So that means you have the private realm where you can practice your religion in full freedom, and you have the political realm where you, you actually forget that you are Muslim or Christian or Jew, and you are mostly French. So that was the French system. But what is interesting is that in Washington for many years and up to now, and I see that you know, in the New York Times every day, is that there is a, this idea that the French are responsible for what they are getting because their, their uh, secularism has been too aggressive and their model has been actually in some ways you know, uh, illiberal to the Muslims. I think this is really uh, something which we have to break, the, it's an idea we have to break the neck of because what we're seeing through Europe is, is that the problem is everywhere. It's not only a French problem, it's a European problem this, uh, in spite of all the different political models that we have. The models of integration are strikingly different in the Netherlands or in Britain where they are much more uh, you know, similar to what we have in, in, uh, in the US and you have the French model, but we, 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 are, we are now grappling with the same problems. So to, to get to the uh, lessons, the lessons is, is that, I mean, according to me, is that in fact, it's not because we are, we've been nasty to Muslims community that we are actually maybe particularly targeted, but maybe the contrary is because maybe a radical Islamist who are plotting these, these uh, attacks from the outside on our country are actually feeling that there is some kind of strength in France that they want to break. Because if they break France, maybe they can break any other European country precisely because of our model. And I think that you know, what is very important is that you cannot embrace and integrate immigrants if you don't believe in your own culture and your own model. I think that for too many years, we have abandoned actually the French suburbs. I mean, it's the title of one of the uh, most uh, book, famous books of, uh, of Gilles Kepel, The uh, Abandoned Territories of the Republic. And I think that there is a, a necessity for France 
to re, uh, reaffirm what it is in terms of values in schools, in the public life, it, and, and it's, it's, uh, it, it has to be also not only a battle you know, against terrorism, but an intellectual battle. And, and the French are actually well equipped. We, we, we just haven't, we have for, forgotten that we have a lot of so intellectual soldiers to our disposals. Voltaire, uh, Tocqueville, Rousseau, lots of, lots of these intellectuals can help us. And we also have to, to uh, remember that France has actually been in contact with Islam for many, mm -hmm. many uh, decades and centuries and knows, and France knows Islam quite well. So, you know, we, we, we've had a, a lot of uh, discussions in the 19th century uh, with people pretty enlightened mm -hmm. about how you deal with Islam, like okay. Lyoté and others. Okay. So Thank you, Laura. Uh, Ambassador, of, if we focus now more on the challenges faced by Europe uh, in its uh, southern eastern environment. In Europe, some voices express concern that the Brexit could strengthen some member states' unwillingness to see the EU take responsibility for its own security. Uh, Minister of Defense Le Drian described it last week as a strong personal concern. In this regard, uh, do you think that France will push its partners, its European partners, to do more in the field of defense and will continue to play a leading role in Syria in the fight against ISIS? Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for uh, including me in this session. Uh, the short answer to your question is, is yes, I believe, I believe so. The ambassador is a little bit reluctant, perhaps, to talk about French leadership. I'm not. Uh, certainly, certainly in the context of the epicenter of this crisis that has had uh, the effect, an, enorm an enormous effect, on the uh, referendum vote mm -hmm. in the UK. The epicenter is Syria. And from the beginning, France has demonstrated, uh, in my view, superb intellectual clarity about the nature of the problem. And France has demonstrated, uh, in partnership with the United States, indeed sometimes getting out ahead of that partnership, uh, readiness to act mm -hmm. in accordance with its perception of what the problem is. What are we dealing with here? In March 2011, when the wheels began to come off in Syria, there were approximately 23 million people in that country. Now it's down to about 17 million. And despite the persistence of an enormously high birth rate, it continues to drop. Let's speak frankly here. For many Europeans, not the leadership of France, but for many Europeans, the attitude towards Syria has been, leave it alone. We don't care about it. As long as Turkey can absorb the human consequences of what is happening in this country, it really doesn't matter to us. Well, I think during the entire course of 2015, perhaps a different lesson was learned. A million migrants to Europe, most of them Syrians, most of them leaving because the country is rapidly devolving into a very uneasy, unstable, and, and murderous, if you will, partition between two 
criminal enterprises, the Assad regime in the West and ISIS in the East. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're, we're going to, even though the EU is taking some steps to assist mm -hmm. Syrian refugees in Turkey and is assisting the Turkish government yeah, in and this. the EU is the biggest donor of aid in Syria. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this, I mean, it's good. God knows the American taxpayer has been generous in treating the effects of this crisis, mm -hmm. but we are dealing with effects. We're dealing with symptoms, mm -hmm. with symptoms. Unless we can get to address the twin problems of civilian protection in Western Syria, where civilians remain on the bullseye, and as long as they remain on the bullseye, there is no prospect of anything good happening diplomatically in Syria. Address that, and the continued survival of ISIS mm -hmm. in its Syrian capital, Raqqa, in the east, where it continues to plan the kinds of atrocities uh, that were perpetrated in Paris and Brussels. Mm -hmm. I think the role of France in all of this is very important. I think for my, I think for my own country, for the United States, I know, I know that there is a, is a tendency right now in the administration to try to tackle this problem in the context of some kind of partnership with Russia, mm -hmm. okay? And I, and I wish Secretary of State John Kerry all the best in that, in that initiative. What I, would, what I would prefer to see, just, just as, a, as, a, as a procedural matter, is, is for the United States first to be in lockstep with its allies on this. And to build upon what you just mentioned, Ambassador Herbst, uh, you served as US ambassador to Ukraine. You know very well Russia. Uh, in your analysis, which Russian policy should France set up and promote for the EU? And how France and Europe should react to uh, the initiative by Secretary Kerry to try to close a deal uh, with Russia without even inviting at the table of negotiation Europe? All right. Uh, one, your, your first question, is this a question for the problem of the South or the problem of the East, or for both? Both. Okay. Uh, we face um, today um, one of the world's two great nuclear superpowers that believes it has the right to change borders in Europe by military force. That is, by definition, an existential threat to the West, to countries in Europe, for that matter, to the United States because our security is bound up entirely with European security. It's taken the West um, a long time to understand this. I think finally it has. The Warsaw Summit, the NATO Summit a few weeks ago, made that very clear that, what, that you have revisionist objectives in the Kremlin. And in order to deal with these objectives, you need to have a strong policy, which the NATO Summit outlined, um, identified the threat, it talked about putting brigades in each of the Baltic states, in Poland, and in Romania, and in, in Bulgaria. So we're seeing the outlines of a policy which provide real deterrence, prevent Moscow from committing provocations in the Baltic states that, in theory, could lead to a very dangerous confrontation. And this has happened because NATO collectively decided this. And France, as a major player in NATO, has been part of this consensus playing an important role. 
Now, within the EU, uh, the key policy has been sanctions on the Kremlin for its aggression in eastern Ukraine. And Chancellor Merkel has taken the lead. And I think she's been able to do this in part because she has a very strong partnership with President Hollande. And a lot of credit goes to him for the policy of the EU in maintaining this. And it's absolutely essential that the sanctions be maintained as the Kremlin begins to step back from its aggression in the east of Ukraine, and that is not happening. Um, every day for the past several weeks, two or three, in some cases, seven Ukrainian soldiers have died. This is the silent war, which people do not pay attention to. Uh, I find it hard to be completely sanguine about this conversation, about the subject, because there are prominent voices in France and elsewhere in Europe that essentially want to appease Kremlin aggression. And these voices, fortunately, do not dictate policy, but they should be discarded as the bad advice that they, they represent. Regarding the South, I would endorse what uh, Ambassador Hoff said. I think an intelligent, strong policy to protect Europe begins with safe zones in Syria, safe zones that require American air power, but European troops. Because American air power alone could not make sure that ISIS, or for that matter, Assad's agents, would not infiltrate into the safe, safe zones. But if you put 50 or 60 or 80,000 troops, Turkish, French, other for the EU, you could create a viable safe zone. And I think this would do a great deal both to ease the humanitarian crisis in Syria and to reduce the effects of immigration into Europe. You can't count on Turkey to do it by itself. Uh, now, there's another question you had. It was how Europe should react to the initiative by Secretary Kerry That's to correct. close the deal. Uh, I, I spent almost half of my career in the Middle East. And I spent a lot of my career in the Middle East working on Arab-Israeli peacemaking. And I think the very best book on peacemaking in the Middle East is the second volume of Kissinger's memoirs. And that volume you read, you'll see that the United States was really the, the train uh, pushing for peace. But in theory, we were doing this with the Soviets. So Kissinger paying due deference publicly to his colleague, Mr. Gromyko, um, would consult with him. And I remember a very famous passage in his memoirs where he talks about leaving Gromyko at the airport in Nicosia to go, to go do the real peacemaking. Unfortunately, what's going on right now is that Lavrov has all the juice, and Kerry is the caboose on Lavrov's chain, the way that Gromyko was, on juice, uh, was the caboose on Kissinger's train. But what really must make this really unfortunate is that Russian policies in Syria are destabilizing and dangerous for Europe, because Russia has used the same military tactics in Syria that used in Chechnya mass bombing deliberately designed to create civilian casualties to flush out the fighters whom they want to destroy. And these fighters are not ISIS. These fighters are the weak people in Syria whom we are supporting. So I think this um, effort by the United States to collaborate with the Russians is a farce. And frankly, I think this is Secretary Kerry's initiative, and President Obama lets him do it, mm -hmm. rather skeptical about the outcome. So I don't think it's to Europe's disadvantage to be left out of this particular exercise, but I can understand why Europe would want to be, well, excuse me, I understand why Europe would want its rightful role. Mm -hmm. But they probably treat this exercise with caution. Okay. Ambassador Arrow, uh, how could France strengthen the member states' cohesion in relation to Russia, uh, as mentioned by the other panelists, while avoiding that the inevitable rivalries do not drive out necessary partnerships? 
first, I, I, I want to answer a question that you didn't raise to react to what my, uh, Madame Mandeville uh, said about identity. Uh, I think identity policies or identity debates are, are totally artificial and toxic. Uh, they're artificial, you know, really, most of the terrorists uh, were actually were not real Muslims. They were not practicing Muslims. You know, really, they didn't have any knowledge of, of, of Islam. You know, really, they really so, and, and what is a Muslim? You know, really, you have the impression that you have people w waking uh, every day saying, Allahu Akbar, I am a Muslim. No way, that's not the real life. You know, they are like the Christians. You know, actually, the religious practice of the Muslims is exactly the same that the religious practice of the Christian in, Euro in France, which is very low. You know, really, actually, the Muslims in France are largely as secularized as the Christians are. And, and actually, you don't have Muslims in France. You have people from Algerian origin who don't go to the mosque of the Moroccans, who don't go to the mosque of the Turks, so you don't have a Muslim community. And, and again, these people, uh, the terrorists, were not people who had really uh, uh, studied during their last six months the Koran and really saying, I'm, I'm implementing the, the 27th hadith of the prophet. They didn't have any knowledge of, of, of Islam. You know, really, so I don't think that we are facing an identity crisis. And I do think that identity policy is the trap into which people want to attract us. They want to define me as a Christian. You know, they want to define my neighbor as a Muslim. Actually, no. Uh, uh, we are, both of us, we are threatened, uh, we are threatened the, same, uh, the same way. And I don't want to be limited of, to being a Christian the same way that the Muslims don't want to be limited. They have, their, they have their national origin. They have their political identity. They have their sexual preference. They have really tens of identities. You can't limit a person to one identity. That's the trap of the far right, which is dragging us into this identity trap. The problem that, we, you know, France had more uh, uh, immigrants in the 50s and the 60s than it has. Actually, immigration is, in a sense, is more or less, in France, it's over. We have 200,000 immigrants every day, every year. We had more immigrants in the 50s and the 60s. Why it worked? Not because these people were Christians, because there were a lot of Algerians, because they got jobs. It was a period of growth. You know, integration is through jobs, really simply. And, and again, you know, really, France is not anymore a Christian country. 65% of the French define themselves as Christian. In the, between the, the age of 18 and 35, 35% of the French define, them, define themselves as Christians. 50% of these people say, I have no religion. You know, that's the, the, the reality of the modern societies. But when a, 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 an economic class is threatened, and it's the case of the people I have said 50% or more than 50% of the French actually have seen their income stagnating or falling. When you feel threatened in your economic status, you are clinging to other issues to reassure yourselves. You are clinging to the identity issues, saying, I'm threatened, but at least I'm, I'm a white. I'm threatened, but at least I'm a Christian. I'm threatened, but at least you know, I am at home here. 
and these people who are suffering the same way, they are not at home. So it's really, it's, 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 a, typical, it's a typical trap. At the same time, I had the impression to, vo to be the voice uh, preaching in the desert, uh, because will actually, uh, I guess, the majority of my citizens will be on the side of, of law. So I really, it's, uh, I, I am bumping into a wall, but I, 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 I felt obliged to do it. On Ukraine, on Ukraine, actually, um, we have been negotiating with the French. We have created the format of the negotiation. It was on the 70th anniversary of the D-Day. Everybody was in France, in Normandy. So we invited uh, the President Putin and Poroshenko and the Chancellor Merkel and the four of, uh, of them actually started what we call now the format Normandy. And since 2014, the four, the French, the Germans, the, the Ukrainians and the Russians have tried to find, uh, to try to find a, a way out. The negotiations have been moving very slowly, really stepping really forward and back. And the Russians have not been only, the only responsible of, of the, 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 the failures. Uh, there have been also on the Ukrainian side moments where, and right now, by the way, where, where really things have been, uh, have been not moving uh, as quickly as, and as positively that we, were, that we were hoping. We have been successful in a way, in the sense that uh, uh, really a full-fledged war has been transformed, as the ambassador has said, in, which is regrettable in incidents, uh, you know, in daily incidents on, the, on, on both sides. Uh, but uh, we are trying with the support of the Americans because the American administration is also helping us with the Russians and the Ukrainians that we, we find a solution. Basically, uh, in a sense, the, the Russians want political concessions in the, in the terms of autonomy of the, east, uh, the eastern part of, of, of Ukraine, and the Ukrainians want military uh, security guarantee uh, in a sense of uh, really disarming uh, the separatists and putting an end to the Russian interference. So that's the, 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 two, the two sides. And of course, you know, when, when one side has got what he wants, he doesn't give to the other side what the other side wants. So it's a very, it's, it's very difficult, uh, it's very difficult uh, uh, negotiation. One of the, 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 the reaction of the Europeans has to be to impose sanctions. I think the Americans don't give us the, 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 the credit to it of that because, in a sense, you know, our, our trade with Russia we, was 11 times more important than your trade with Russia. And actually, the sanctions have hurt us very much because, you know, not only we, have not, we are not selling anymore to the Russians, but the Russians have imposed us sanctions on the Europeans and especially on the European agriculture. So the Europeans are suffering from, 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 from the crisis. That's, that's a, a very important point. Second point, the, Russian, the, the sanctions are an instrument. They are not an end in themselves. We are not going to keep the sanctions uh, really uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, you know, really. So there is a moment where some countries, which is not the case of France and, and Germany, but some countries are starting to say, well, wait a minute. You know, we have had these sanctions for the last two, four, three years. It doesn't work, and it, it hurts us. So there is a real debate in Europe. Every six months, we have to renew the, the sanctions, and it's on a unanimity basis. So we need to bring the 28 countries. And again, I, and I'm not speaking as a French uh, on that, but I won't bet that we can keep the sanctions, uh, you know, 
over and over and over. I think there will be a moment when some European countries will tell us, sorry, but your sanctions don't work, but, and they hurt us, so we have to, to find something else. We have renewed them uh, July for six months, so there will be a new debate at the end of December, and again six months later. Uh, I don't know when there will be the moment when, can, really, but I think it will happen. Thank you. So now we will take questions from the audience. Please introduce yourself and please keep your question very concise. Thank you. I think we're finished. Yes. Um, Dieter Detke, Georgetown University. Um, I would like to comment briefly on, on your suggestion, Ambassador Herbst, to send European troops to Syria. And I doubt that's a good idea uh, for two reasons. One is, where is the European consensus that would make it possible to send troops into that conflict zone, which has a totally different structure that Europe has little influence to, uh, to change. Um, uh, the, the second point, I mean, where are German troops there? Where are French troops? And now after Brexit, where is a country that would support such a step? I don't see it. Second point is we shouldn't forget what Robert Gates said about sending troops into the Middle East. Anyone who does it should have his head examined. I'm sorry to quote Robert Gates against you, but I think he has a point that sending military troops into the conflict zone is not a contribution to a solution. It's an invitation to enlarge the conflict, and, and that we should think about twice at least. Thank you. Do I get to respond? Yes, please. Thank you. Um, I think Robert Gage was right when he said that, but he was talking about getting us involved in, a, in an Asian war. And I think you could establish a defense perimeter with, with serious uh, military um, barriers, and you're fighting not a war, you're fighting, you're simply establishing a zone of peace. It would be a mistake for European troops or American troops to get involved in a war against the government in Syria or against the, I mean, in a major way, for the reasons that Gates said. But keep in mind that Europe faces very serious internal tensions as a result of this immigration flow. And the European solution has been to put it all on the Turks. And the Turks can, go, can do only so much, especially since there are other issues between Europe and the Turks. So if Europe believes that stemming the tide of, of refugees into Europe is of vital interest, they've got to take some risk. And I think this is a manageable risk, again, establishing a defense perimeter, serious military hardware, American air power. If I, if, I, if I could just add a couple of words to that. I, I think that to the extent that there has been some serious consideration of outside forces, European, regional, whatever, going into Syria, it has been very much focused on the problem of ISIS in eastern Syria. Uh, the, the problem we face, quite frankly, is that there does not appear to be a ground combat component of the coalition's war against ISIS in eastern Syria that is capable of bringing this thing to a decisive result. This, this is the objective problem. You know, how you want to address it is, you know, is, a, is a real question for policymakers. But I think we have to ask ourselves at the end, uh, how lucky do we think we are? We've had Paris. We've had Brussels. Is Lincoln, Nebraska all that far behind? How lucky do we think we are? How long are we going 
to give these guys in Raqqa to target us and is a, is a largely Kurdish militia in eastern Syria the answer to bringing this to decision? And, and, and finally, any decision, I mean, if there's one thing we've, we've really learned in the last few decades in Iraq, in Libya, any decision to deploy outside forces to a place like Syria uh, that is unaccompanied by an executable civil military stabilization plan is the definition of insanity. Uh, this, is, this is one thing we absolutely have to get right, and I think we do have the raw material in Syria to put something plausible together, but without that, going, going in would be very, very problematical. I, I may say so, uh, really, I, again, I, I'm, in a sense, I have some sympathy for your intervention. I think that the, we have to understand that the Russian intervention has totally changed the rules. And I don't see Americans or Europeans creating a safe zone now because of the Russian presence. Because the Russian presence means, in military terms, in military terms, that the Russians are the master of the, air, of the, 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 the air through the anti-aircraft uh, systems and through the, their aircraft. I don't see the Americans or the Europeans risking a major incident with the Russians. You know, really, in a sense, the Russian intervention has, has really changed uh, the situation on the ground, and our options now are quite limited. Uh, Mike Mosetic, PBS uh, Online News Hour. Following up on Dieter's question, seems like we've been talking about Turkey as it existed two weeks ago. Aren't we in a different Turkey now? And what role do you see Turkey playing in, in the region uh, or vis-a-vis -vis Europe under its current circumstance where they seem to be most interested in putting any suspect person in jail? No, no, Ambassador no, Hoff. <laughs> I am an ambassador. <laughs> yes, I think, uh, I think with, with, with Turkey and, and the region, we're, we're going to be very much in a, in a wait and see mode uh, for weeks, if not, if not months. Uh, Turkey, as a, uh, if you look at the Turkish government, the Turkish armed forces uh, as, a, as a bureaucratic entity, uh, does not have unlimited capacity in any event. And now that, now that capacity is being challenged by the, by the internal reaction to the, uh, to the attempted coup of a, of a couple of weeks ago. So, so we're going to have to see. There were some indications before the attempted coup uh, that Turkey might be reconsidering elements of its policy towards Syria and other neighbors. Uh, I think it is clear that Turkey is undergoing a reconsideration of its relationship with Moscow. Uh, I would say that as the, as, as the Turks, both government and people, work through this extraordinarily traumatic experience, uh, we're just going to have to, have to wait and see uh, how all of this uh, sorts out. David Kadir, Center for Treason and Equalization, that's size Johns Hopkins. Uh, my question is to Ambassador Aro and concerns the uh, sanctions uh, towards Russia and the, the Minsk process about Ukraine. You convincingly explained that these sanctions are a policy instrument, and indeed if they're a posture, we won't get anything out of them anyway. 
but my question is, uh, is it since a tool in the bargaining process, we don't always get everything we hope to achieve in the bargaining process. So in your view, what can we get out of these sanctions? What are the most hopeful uh, items out of the Minsk process where we can actually make progress? I know that Berlin and Paris had placed the emphasis on elections in the East recently. Do you have any updates or how are we moving on that specific item in particular? Thank you. No, you, you're right to, to emphasize that it's not uh, uh, sanctions or not sanctions. There could be some real, you know, really a sort of incremental process where, uh, you know, we, where you phase out some sanctions while keeping some sanctions. So it's, it's an instrument which is more flexible than, than it appears. Uh, actually, as I've said, um, uh, we have uh, moved forward, uh, we, we thought that we had moved forward on the political aspect of, uh, in, in quite detailed way, uh, about the organization of elections uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, but the problem is, again, that in, uh, on the military side, uh, the security side, uh, we, uh, uh, we didn't have the same, uh, the same success, which has led the, the other parties, uh, the other party, in a sense, to, uh, to, give it, to, to, to say that they prefer to wait uh, before going to, to elections. Uh, again, it's the egg and the hen, uh, security elections, election security. Um, there is a real question at, at the core of this negotiation is whether two sides or only one side, um, you know, really uh, wants a, 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 really an outcome to the negotiation or is preferring the status quo. And, and that's, a real, uh, that's a real question. You know, really, uh, you can have the arguments both ways. Uh, and for the moment, uh, we, unfortunately, the French and the Germans, we don't have the answer, uh, simply because we have gone, in the last two years, uh, really through a lot of, uh, a lot of bumps. Uh, and for the moment, right now, uh, we are not very optimistic. Uh, but we are really, again, we are trying again and again. As you know, the diplomats say um, diplomatic process is better than nothing. Uh, and also the fact is that our American friends uh, will, in a sense, have stepped in, uh, in a sense, more forcefully uh, and are really supporting what we are trying to do. Uh, so our objective is the full implementation of the Minsk process. Uh, but if there are steps forward, uh, we, we would be able to take our, so draw some consequences on the sanctions side. Laura, you want to add a word? Yes. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> I, I just wanted to say that, first of all, I mean, knowing a little bit the Russians for having studied Russia for, for 20 years, mm. I really doubt that the Russians are going to implement Minsk. I think they're going to wait until the Europeans are sufficiently divided to lift the sanctions. And I think it would be a very regrettable sign to do so. But I think, as the ambassador seems to, uh, to sort of uh, aim, that it will probably happen, unfortunately. What I wanted to say is that it will probably happen because of the discussion we've been having today, which is that the Russian factor actually is very linked in Europe at this point to the question of radical Islam. Why? Because there is this idea, there is actually in, throughout Europe, and especially in France, this growing idea, especially on the right, on the far right especially, but also on the right and also on the far left, that Russia could be a buffer against radical Islam. 
I think it's, it's an extremely dangerous, actually, uh, idea, but it is, it is a, a real, a real uh, tendency trend in France that people think we should actually ally ourselves with the Russians to fight radical Islam, and Vladimir Putin has been extremely you know, forceful in trying to sell this idea. He has actually you know, repeated on and on that we are the, uh, we are the defender of uh, Christianity, uh, we are going to help you, Europe, and look at your American friends who have actually messed up this whole Syria story. They have abandoned you. The, the administration is repeating that it's not a, a key and strategic uh, vital issue, uh, an issue of vital interest for the United States. So, but we think this is vital, so work with us. And I think that there is really a conflation of, of, uh, of uh, you know, of of, of trends and, and, and of uh, interests here, which could lead in this, uh, you know, willingness of the West to of the of Europe to strike a, a deal with the Russians. Um, it is very uh, worrying what we see on the far right of the, of the uh, you know, of the spectrum throughout Europe, because we really see actually what I call actually uh, quoting a friend of mine who is a specialist on Russia. She calls that the Putin turn. And actually, sort of, uh, you know, re, uh, rephrasing of the common turn which existed uh, during communism, that Putin has managed to gather around him this coalition of far-right parties. Actually, uh, giving uh, you had uh, this Russian bank giving money to uh, to Marine Le Pen uh, uh, for uh, her party, and other signs, you know, that you know <clears throat> the Russians have been working with the. Uh, Gert Wilders in, in the Netherlands and many, many other of these signals. Uh, I think this is a, this is a, a very dangerous uh, trend, but to, to answer the ambassador who has actually a little bit teased me on the question of identity, what I want to, to say is that people can be poor, but they don't blow themselves up because they are poor. So there is really something happening here, and we have to face it. And I think that if we don't, actually, that's when we would get, you, will, you will get the polarization and the far right in power. Because we have actually abandoned the question of identity and of what we are facing as a nation to the far right. And they have just hijacked patriotism and the whole question of, of, of how, how are we going to you know, sort of oppose what is happening. Because I think, Mr. Ambassador, you said that at the moment it's no more Europe which is going to uh, which is going to uh, be the answer, and I think you're totally right. The the uh, the nation state is what the people are sort of going to as a, as a sort of uh, protection in this absolutely crazy world that we're seeing. You know, when we see what is going on in the U.S., what we we see. Uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the radical Islam factor, the Russian threat, uh, people tend to sort of go back to the nation state. And uh, I think it's, it's absolutely vital that center-right and center-left parties in France actually face the question of identity. Otherwise, they're going to abandon uh, the, the question to, uh, to, to the far right. Uh, a couple of points relating to the fight in Ukraine's east. One, we need to be clear, and NATO was clear, that the war in Ukraine's east was manufactured in Moscow, led by Russians, financed by Russians, 
equipped by Russians, and in many cases, soldiered by Russians, point one. Point two, the violations of Minsk have been overwhelmingly on the Russian as opposed to the Ukrainian side. Not, not entirely, but overwhelmingly. Point three on sanctions. Uh, I believe that as long as Chancellor Merkel is strong, the sanctions are going to remain. If for some reason she stumbles, but Hillary Clinton is the President of the United States, the sanctions will remain unless Russia decides to honor its Minsk commitments. And I've been following this very closely. This is the way it will play out. Thank you. We have time for one last question. Thank you, uh, Johan Andries, Belgian Embassy. I would like to come back on the implications of the Brexit uh, in the field of uh, security and defense in Europe. So we all know that uh, when it comes to European defense and security policy making and decision making, uh, the British were not the most supportive member state. But when it comes to uh, contributions in terms of capabilities, they have a quite impressive set of high sophisticated and very useful capabilities. So Mr. Ambassador, how would you assess to what degree would the uh, Brexit uh, hamper the further development of a credible European security and defense policy? Thank you. Frankly, I, it's really a field where I'm not worried because um, first, uh, we are working together with our British friend, as I've said, in a bilateral way. Uh, we have a very strong, uh, people are not aware of it, but we have really, the French and the British, we have been working together uh, really and uh, to the point of having some consultations of nuclear deterrence. And we have the Lancaster House Treaty, which is out of the European Union framework. And, uh, and you know, we have a, um, French, uh, a French general, you know, really, which is now the deputy of a British general at, at the head of a, a British unit and the same thing on the other side. Uh, really, there is a really now, we are really comrade in arms. And I think that really remain. And we, the French, we really do want to, that to remain. Um, we are also together uh, in NATO. And um, France, as you know, is full member of NATO. And uh, so we are working also in this framework. And as for the European defense identity, you know, really, or uh, the, 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 the defense, uh, the, really, Again, the British have never been very active in it. Uh, and, and we do know that this, uh, this military operation led by the European Union uh, will be and always will be more peacekeeping operation or stabilization operations, uh, where in a sense, you know, really we can do it without the British. You know, really they were, when you look at all the EU operations, uh, there are operations that, that we can conduct, I think, uh, uh, without, uh, without the, the, the British. On the opposite, you know, really, as you know, the British have been always very, um, not only skeptical, but actually opposed uh, to any uh, defense dimension within the European Union. They have, for instance, opposed the creation of uh, real uh, European headquarters, EU headquarters in Brussels, um, really saying it would be a duplication of um, of Mons, of uh, uh, the 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 command of NATO uh, in uh, in Belgium. So maybe that actually now maybe we will be more uh, will be more able to to create one uh, military headquarters. So again, I think it will be a limited effect on the European defense and maybe a, a slightly positive a positive one. But uh, we really we the French we do insist on. Uh, still working together with our British colleagues. Well, on these final remarks by Ambassador Aro, please join me to thank our four panelists for the discussion.
Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at AtlanticCouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.